Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. In this episode of Meaningful Journeys, I talk to Ali about his experiences during the Hajj pilgrimage. The Hajj occurs annually for five days during the last month of the Islamic lunar calendar. Approximately two and a half million Muslims gather in Saudi Arabia to take part in this pilgrimage. Ali's pilgrimage is somewhat unique. His mother had been waiting to be selected to go on the Hajj, and she passed away before she was selected. Her name was chosen shortly after, so Ali's family decided that he should go in her place. So technically, this Hajj was Ali's mother's Hajj and not his own. Ali was raised in a religiously observant household and is no longer a practicing Muslim. Ali's name and voice have been altered to protect his identity. I was really interested to hear how meaningful this pilgrimage was for Ali in light of these circumstances and how he connected in a special way with his mother, whom he loved very dearly. I started our conversation by asking Ali what led to his pilgrimage experience in the first place. I wasn't interested in the pilgrimage. My mother was a very religious woman. Maybe if you looked at her, you wouldn't think she was very religious, but she had a really strong belief in her religion and Islam. And like any other Muslim, it was her lifelong dream to be able to go and do Hajj. The way it works is you have to register your name, and there's always like 2 million applicants, and then every year they can only take 50,000, I don't know, maybe 5,000. I don't know the number exactly, how many people are going from Iran. Every country has a ration. There was so many months before the event, they usually draw me. Then, you know, that year, it's your turn to go. My mom and my sister passed at an accident. And then uh, a few months after my mom passed, her name was drawn at that point. So she was not there anymore, but it was her turn now to go. It was maybe the year after her passing. So the way it works and the way we believe in it is you can actually send somebody in lieu of yourself to do your hajj. Any, any Muslim has to do their hajj if they can afford it. So if you don't do it, it's like not training. You have to do a few things as a Muslim. All Muslims, Shia, Sunnis believe that you have to do certain things. So when you die, you're considered a Muslim. So one of them is hajj if you can afford it, you know, physically, but also uh, financially. And the thought is like you can actually send somebody instead of yourself if you're too weak to go, for example. With my mom, technically speaking, we could send somebody. And we actually knew this uh, family member who was a very devout man and a very good man. And we thought asking him to go and do my mom's hash for her. And that was the plan. And then I was supposed to come to Canada, actually, at the time. I went to Iran to finish my university and then get my uh, degree and also learn English. That's why I was in Iran. When the name came out, the Hajj was happening several months after the time that I was supposed to go to Canada. So that's why I said, okay, you know, someone else would go. But I, I couldn't accept that deep down. I had a very special relationship with my mother. 
I think there is also a tradition, and there's no law or anything, but it's a tradition, that, especially for an older son to take care of these sort of activities. Uh, I come from a very traditional family. I really thought about it, and I realized if I don't do this, even though I'm not particularly a believer, or I wasn't particularly keen on doing Hajj, I would always regret it. And I didn't particularly believe that by doing this, my mom now is considered Muslim in the next world. I felt like this is something my mom would have wanted me to do. It was more like, let's do this with my mom. It's been several years since my mom passed, but literally there hasn't been a day that I didn't think about her. During those days that I was doing Hajj, I felt her presence with me. Like it was like I was with her. So I, I knew that's going to happen, and I was looking forward to that. That was why I did the Hajj. Can you describe for me what the rituals are during the Hajj? And if you could just walk me through what happens day by day? I don't consider myself to be a qualified person to tell you exactly day by day. I can give you a general thing. For Iranians, the way they do it is you go and spend a month in Saudi Arabia and you spend 15 days in Medina, which is where Prophet Muhammad passed, but also lived for 13 years and created a caliphate. That's the capital of Islam. For doing Hajj, you don't even have to go to Medina. That's paying respect to Prophet Muhammad to go to Medina and see that site. Some people go to Medina first and then go to Mecca, do their Hajj, and then some people go to Mecca, do their Hajj, and then go to Medina and do more of a tourist more than anything. During the Hajj, everybody has to be in Mecca. Every day has a certain kind of activities. You have to, what we call tawaf, or you have to uh, circle around the Kaaba certain number of times, you have to go and run or jog or walk between Safa and Marwa, where there are two uh, hills that, according to Muslims, believe uh, Hajar, who was Abraham's mother. There's that difference between Christianity and Islam that we believe Abraham was supposed to be cut the, the throat and all of that, as opposed to Isaac. We are essentially doing everything that happened to Abraham, according to the story. There are certain activities, and then there is a night that we have to go out and sort of camp outside, and then everyone has to walk through a relatively narrow valley, and then that's on the Eid al-Adha, on the last day, you have to throw stones at the Satan. That's essentially when Abraham was supposed to cut his son's throat, and then the Satan would come, and then Abraham throws stone, and then went away. And I think I'm getting the names wrong. What's the other son of Abraham? Ishmael. Ishmael, yes. Muslims believe. Abraham was cutting the throat of Ishmael, or Ismail, as opposed to Isaac. You become a, a hedge, you shave your head, and then you kill an animal or slaughter an animal. You usually don't do it yourself. It gets done, and then you just pay for that. And then you're a Hajj. The, the most amazing part of it for me was the walking. We stayed at night, this desert. That's where Muslims believe, or there's, it's actually not written in Quran, but for the Shias, that's the story they have. That's the site that Adam and Eve met each other. So there's a little hill there that the Muslims believe when Adam and Eve were expelled from heaven, they eventually met each other at the top of that hill. I think the story goes like Adam went up that hill, looked around, and eventually could find his partner or the wife, Havla. If you call it Havla, I guess you go in English as feet. One of the aspects of the Hajj that I've always been very curious about is the Sea of People. Oh, okay. uh, I want to hear what that's like to be in the middle of millions of people. It's unbelievable. 
It truly is. If you you like your privacy a lot, that's not a really good place. <laughs> this is what I was taught, and I'm not sure if the need believe in that or agree with that, so I can only tell you about what I was told. It's essentially supposed to resemble the, I don't know the, the English term, the last day everybody will come out of their grave and walk towards this place, and they're supposed to be judged by God. So it's supposed to mimic that. That's the idea. Everybody is wearing literally just rags or just cloth. For men, you have like a towel that shouldn't even be uh, sewn around your waist and another one around your shoulder. That's it. And I don't know how familiar you are with the way Muslims are buried. It's not all that different. And for women, there's a little bit more clothes, so they don't have to be as uncomfortable. But again, they're wearing very simple, minimal white clothes. So essentially, you cannot find your child if you're looking for them in that sea of people. And that's what we were told that what's going to happen on the last day when people are coming out of the grave. You cannot even find your mother. No one can help you. It's based on what you have done in this life. It's just a sea of people, and they all do the same thing. They all have the same goal. They walk the same direction. Energy is amazing. It's crazy. It really is crazy. And no one's distinguishable. Like, I remember I was walking, and then this guy walked in front of me. He was this super tall man. I don't know where he was from, but he was tall and strong. And he didn't have any meat on him. But great to walk behind because he cut the population. <laughs> and I was just kind of walking behind him. Oh, and another thing is that you're not supposed to push people around, but you, it's kind of inevitable sometimes. And for Shias, they tell us we have to be so close to the Kaaba, which makes it really difficult. So you have to walk, and you shouldn't be looking around. You should be looking in front of you. You can't even turn. You shouldn't elbow people if they're pushing you. So it's actually kind of difficult. But then you get into the zone, and then you're saying the verse. You know, Allahumma labbaik, labbaik, sharika laka labbaik. It's like, it's so powerful. Everybody says the same thing. Everybody does the same thing. Everyone walks the same direction. Everyone's dressing the same. It's a very amazing experience. Like, I can't explain it. And I've never experienced that again. Even for the night that you're staying in this mashad or the desert, and then you walk to where you're throwing stone, you have to walk through this narrow little valley. Normally, it probably would take you two hours to walk it. It took me, and most of the wealthier, that's the time, you see a little bit of a class thing going on. They take a bus and they go a different hour so they don't miss it and all of that. But I decided to go with people and it was amazing. I was so tired. You kind of collect stones with you at some place else because you're not going to be able to find a stone when you're there. I was so tired. I put the stones down in my head and I fell asleep. It's an amazing experience when you're there and everyone's just trying to do the same thing, try to be there at a certain time, you know, you can't miss it, you have to be there, otherwise all your uh, work is in vain, I guess. Also, the story that goes with it, this is a site that my ancestors, all of them went to, and I told you, like, God knows, like, how many generations in my family were Muslims, and I don't know how many of them went to do the Hajj, but I know my grandfathers did, my father did. I don't know how many generations of Muslims have done it. And if you're a believer, that's the site where Prophet Muhammad stood up. And it's probably true because this has been going on even before Prophet Muhammad died. So this is an old, very, very old. And so that's another fact, and that is Prophet Muhammad built this pilgrimage on an existing pilgrimage. So he changed certain aspects of it and added and removed a few things. But for the most part, it was going on even before him. So 
I don't know, maybe 2,000 years, people have been doing the same thing. So it, it, to be part of that, it's just so amazing. It seems like it places the pilgrim in a sort of historical continuity. I agree, yeah. You mentioned the rocks that you brought with you that had been gathered from other places, and I'm curious where they came from. So Mecca is a little city, and it's surrounded by mountains. All around it is mountains. They sometimes explain it as a bowl almost, and Kaaba is actually at the very bottom of it. There's different places you can take to the rocks, and Mecca is actually very easy because it's just mountains around you, so you can go pick it up. But there is this one hill that they recommend to take it from, and that's where I think Prophet Muhammad took it from. I can't remember if I took my stones from there, or I actually went up to Hara Cave, that's where Muslims believe Prophet Muhammad became a prophet. That's where uh, we call Jibreel, Jibreel, uh, I, I don't know in English, but like Jibreel came to Prophet Muhammad and asked him to write, and Prophet Muhammad said, I don't know how to write. And then Jibreel said, oh no, you can't do it, and then he wrote. So that was the miracle that happened. And then that's where God spoke with Prophet Muhammad through Jibreel. I went there and visited there, and I think that's where I picked up the rock. I can't remember, like, you're supposed to throw it, and then you have to see it hitting the stone. And the color they change it now, it's more of a wall, because there's just so many people, and it's so unsafe otherwise. How does one enter the sea? I mean, I'm trying to picture... <laughs> you can't go out of it. It takes you with it. It literally, I don't know if you swam in a big river or not, you step foot in it, and it takes you with it. You have no power or little power, especially if you want to actually do it as recommended, which is not hurting anybody. You just go with the people. And that's why it's so dangerous when people fall off. And that's what they tell you. If your old mother falls, you're not helping at certain places because you're just going to go down and together you'll die. Every year a lot of people die. Well, I'm always amazed that more people don't get injured. Four or five years ago, there was an incident and a lot of people died. A lot of Iranians actually died. What is it like to be in an environment with so many people who are dressed the same? I mean, people are coming from all over the world. There's class differences, gender differences, differences within Muslim observance and sex that are different. What's it like to be in an environment where the goal is for everyone to be the same? That's one of those questions that is probably going to be hearing a different answer from everybody who you speak with. For me, it was very beautiful. And, and the core of Islam, again, the way I was taught, was all Muslims are equal and we are all brothers and sisters. So in my mind, when Prophet Muhammad designed this thing, in his mind, he actually made everyone to wear the same thing. So no one who's richer or poorer looked different when they're doing this. However... Having said that, in a modern day, when you're there, there are people that are sleeping on the street, which it doesn't necessarily mean they're poor. They are still wealthy because, again, unless you're wealthy, you're not supposed to do Hajj. You should have enough money to be able to do Hajj. So they're in their, their own standard, they still have enough money. And then you have these crazy hotels that some people stay in, and they overlook the, the cabin, which is the stupidest thing, by the way. So you still have that class, as you mentioned. But again, when you're done, you're sleeping, and when you're doing your, we call it amal or duties or acts that you're supposed to do, for the most part, everyone is the same. Some people are treated slightly differently, but it's not a lot different. I think the idea is it doesn't matter what your social class is, what color your skin is, doesn't matter what your 
the same essentially when you're doing your duties. What about the day of Arafah? Was there anything that stuck out for you that day? Shia treats Arafat day a little differently. You know, it's a day that you're supposed to really think about why you're doing your Hajj. Shia believes our 12th Imam. Actually, I think Sunnis believe in that too. I mean, they call him Mahdi, but it's kind of like the same idea as the Jesus who was disappeared and resurrected and comes back to the world one day. And I guess you don't say he comes back to the world one day, but Muslims believe Mahdi's going to come back and good things going to happen. And uh, actually, Jesus is going to come back with him. That's what uh, Shia believes. We believe on that particular day, Mahdi is there. And that's a big deal. So they do a lot of prayers and read a lot of Quran and other holy scripts to commemorate that. For me, the experience was, again, not having a strong belief or any belief. I walked around a lot and everyone's got a camp, right? So you got all these gazillion camps. I walked to different camps. I saw different people from different countries. You know, the memory of my mom, I remember I distributed some dates, for example. That's another common thing between Muslims. Like, you do that, and then they read a verse of Quran, and that's supposed to help make the dead happy. So, so I did a lot of that, and that's the day that I actually decided to do the walking to where they throw stones. So that was my experience. I guess not as meaningful for me as it is for devout Muslims. How did you experience your mom's presence with you during the Hajj? I thought about her constantly, right? I mean, I think about her once or twice a day, but there I was thinking about her constantly. You know, I almost felt like she's walking it with me. I thought a lot about her, and, you know, at the same time, I thought a lot about what are we doing and why are we doing it. So I guess I found a beauty in Hajj, and I considered that a gift that my mom gave how was your experience when you returned home? Oh, I was sick. I was so sick. <laughs> Most people are, right? When you're there, there's just so many people, so it's almost inevitable you get sick. After Mecca, I went to live my Medina. So that was a bit of a debriefing. And Medina doesn't really have a lot for it. It's just got the mosque across Muhammad. And then you go there a few times and see it, and there's really not a lot going on. A lot of people go do shopping, and I really don't like doing shopping. So I guess at that time, I was trying to see Medina and Saudi Arabia a little bit. So I was a tourist. My religious and you know, all that stuff was gone at that point for the most part. For Shias, we have the Bahi, where the few of our imams and the Prophet Muhammad's daughter is buried. So, and there's really nothing there. There's no stone or anything. It's the, according to the Hobbies beliefs, they destroyed all of that. But a big deal for us, for Shias. And I went out there a few times and participated in activities that's associated with that place, reading different holy scripts and whatnot. But I guess for the most part, I was a bit of a visitor in Medina. And the structure they built is really beautiful. I'm an engineer, so I'm appreciating the architecture of this mosque they built. And then there's the bazaars around, and I was just kind of observing people at that point for the most part. When you returned, did you go back to Iran or Canada? Well, after the Saudi Arabia, I went to Iran. I was there for 15 days, and then I traveled to Canada, essentially. So, But I was very sick. How did your family receive you back? Oh, again, it's a tradition, right? So you come back, and then 
everyone comes and visits you. My grandmother, at the time she was alive, and she was a very, very devout Muslim, and she was so happy and so proud of me that I, I did the Hajj. So I'm, I'm, because I did it for my mom, I still have to do it for myself. I'm not considered a Hajj. If you do a Hajj, you're a Hajj or Haji. So I'm, I'm not technically because I did it for my mom. <laughs> I guess that's one of those things. But she was so proud, and then she was like, oh, you know, I, I pray for you, so you go do it by yourself, and now it's time to get married, you know, all of that stuff. And, and now that I think about it, you know, that brings me a smile, I guess, uh, go through that. And then they throw, like, a big party for you, like, they feed people, and then people come and keep, like, kissing your cheeks and stuff. I guess I have, like, some holy steel on me or something, and they probably to rub them <laughs> on them, I don't know. And you're supposed to bring everybody a little thing as a souvenir. I didn't bring any. I didn't want to go shopping, right? So I just bought a bunch of um, the little beads that you have on a on a rope. Uh, Christians have it as well. Catholic. Like prayer beads? Yeah. So I brought some of those and then some uh, carpets for like a prayer carpet and that sort of thing. Did you bring any water back? Yeah, I think everybody brings some back. So that's the, the, that's the fountain, right? That's the Zam Zam, we call it. So Haja was really, according to the story, right? Haja was getting really thirsty. That's when he ran between Safa and Marwa a few times, and then she was kind of like juggling a few times. Her son was there. They didn't have any any uh, water. They were getting really tired. So she eventually sat down and cried and asked God, you know, I need water kind of thing. And then the fountain appeared at her foot or at her son's foot or something like that. But that's the site that I think it's an artesian uh, water or some sort. I drank some of that and I brought some of that back. And you can find that in Edmonton in grocery stores nowadays. They bottle them in little things and you can buy them just about everywhere now. But yeah, there's belief that that water would resurrect dead and give me just about anything. For you being a non-practicing Muslim, what do you think was significant for your own spirituality that might not have been associated with your Islamic family tradition? Probably it is important for all Muslims, but for me it was perhaps the most important thing, and that was the just the population. The sheer strength and devotion of the people who were there. You, you see, and, and then how much, like my own mother, and there were so many like her, right? I mean, they were just, I can't explain how happy they were that they are there. Like, it was just so amazing to see the pure joy that these people are going through. Or they would cry from the bottom of their hearts say that they had to leave. They were like, can I just be here forever? Like that's how you almost felt they, they feel. Again, it's a lifelong dream for these people. Right? I mean, they grow up thinking about doing this. And, you know, oftentimes many people don't ever travel outside of their own area. And this is the only time they get to travel. So when I have to travel, go somewhere, I start dreaming about it like six months before that and, you know, start planning for it and all of that stuff. But imagine that your entire life you've been looking forward to doing this. And this is not just a trip of seeing something. This is a duty that you have to do and this is something that your father did and something that Prophet Muhammad did. So seeing that in people was very, actually, eye-opening for me. I had a lot more respect for the religion and for the people who practice it. Are there any lessons that you took away from the experience? <laughs> to never trust the clergy. 
so there's a night you're supposed to sleep in the camp, and they tell you you shouldn't put anything over you that has, like, any sewing on it. And God, that night I was cold. That's when I got sick. And then I got up in the morning, and I saw the clergy. He was putting all these things on him. I was like, you told me don't put any anything on me because they're all sewn. I was like, oh, it was really cold. I'm like, you got it. was cold for me, too. And he said, oh, it was like we have a word in the Shia, it's called Tariya or something. Oh, no, because it passed that threshold, that law was waived. I'm like, all these laws are just for people. You guys never follow it because you never believe in it. And you're causing all the grief for just the normal people. So that was funny. <laughs> I guess that's kind of a bit of a joke. It's true, though, but. I mean, I learned a lot about the history of the event, and I also talked to a lot of people and tried to understand why they think, what every activity means. There is a few books that people often read, and I read those as well. Some of them pay attention to the social importance of the Hajj, and some of them more like spiritual aspects of the Hajj. I tried to read those, and I guess I learned a lot about um, those as well. You just heard My Mother's Hajj, produced by Dr. Heather Warfield and edited by Janine Marr. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England, and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook, or by email info at MeaningfulJourneys.net or our website, www.MeaningfulJourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.